Watch 88.9 The Bridge. Welcome back to my show, Garden of Eden. It's Garden of Eden, and I'm your host. I talk about what I like most. Garden of Eden! (laughs) With me today is Jeff Randolph, my wonderful psychology teacher. Uh, Mr. Randolph, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me, Eden. It's, It's wonderful to get to chat with you all. So I know I kind of just said, but I want to hear a little bit more about what you teach and what your background is, maybe if you've danced around subjects and stuff like that. Yeah, I I sort of have. Um, I have been teaching psychology, uh, AP psychology, for about eight or nine years, I think, at the high school now, maybe maybe seven or eight years. And uh, additionally, I've taught English courses, Uh, taught English 12, English 9, a few years back when I was, oh, dabbling, I, I started teaching a course called Film Literature. And additionally, I've served as a instructional coach, as an instructional coach at the high school, working with other teachers. I did that for about four years. And I took a step back from that to be full-time in the classroom, where I like to be. Um, but yeah, prior to being here uh, at Mercer Island, I started here, I think it's 14 years now. This will be my 14th year. I was teaching just outside of Boston in a community called Newton, Newton South High School. Uh, I had received my master's degree from Boston University. So that's kind of my most recent teaching career path. Okay. And I'm curious, when you were around my age entering college, did you know that you wanted to do something with education, be a teacher? I always loved high school. Uh, I loved high school when I was in high school. Um, which I didn't know I wanted to teach necessarily when I was in high school, but I always loved high school. I had a good experience. I did ASB. I was ASB president when I was in high school and what was called student council for me. I did several activities. I did the radio. I actually called color, uh, the, the color broadcast for football games for two years when I was a junior and senior in high school. And then I did a little bit of the basketball after I no longer played for the basketball team. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, uh, so I did, I did a lot of activities. I did newspaper. I was an editor for editorials and uh, I really enjoyed, that's when I discovered I loved writing was in my high school years. So I was very activity driven in high school. Uh, I dabbled in sports, but I wasn't very good at them. Um, so I parlayed that into calling football and basketball games. And I, I learned from a really a cool, a cool guy who recently passed away, unfortunately, Um, But his name was Rod Kelly, and Rod was the color announcer for University of Missouri football. And so I got to learn a lot about broadcasting from him. So your high school had a high school radio station like Mercer Island does? We did not. It was a partnership with a local radio station uh, that did broadcast the football and basketball games. And I was in a film and television broadcasting class, or radio and film broadcasting, whatever it was called then. And uh, I, I asked if I could join Rod on the air. So, yeah. Ah, okay, I see. I had an interest in broadcast journalism. And so the schools I applied to were Northwestern, University of Missouri, University of Florida, because they were all pretty good uh, broadcast journalism mm-hmm. schools. So it seems like you were a very cool high schooler, like you're a very cool person <laughs> now. And, and I think your students would describe you as a super enthusiastic, happy-go-lucky 
positive, encouraging teacher. I think talking about students and your experience with teaching and also how you treat students based off of your knowledge in psychology, I think that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. But I think a good place to start would be like, why psychology? Why is why is that what you're most interested in, if it is? That's a great question. Um, I, I always have had a, a love for psychology. I did not major in psychology. I had enough credits that if there was a minor at the University of Florida, I would have earned that. And I took psychology coursework in my master's program as well. But my interest in psychology as it is, I think partly it's just trying to understand the human condition, which is basically the question that a lot of disciplines ask. My interest really started with literature and writing and English. And so that interrogates the same question. What is the human condition? Why are we here? Kind of the essence of being. And psychology does it in a different manner. And so it's they're nice compliments to one another. Yeah. And I find it's a, a fascinating subject. Like I've told my students several times that if I went back to the drawing board and had to choose a different career path, I would probably do cognitive neuroscience just because my interests now have broadened to where that's, I'm really curious about the brain and, and decision-making. So I don't know. It's just, it's morphed over time. It's kind of funny to think about how much has changed in terms of my interests. That's the other thing. I, I think I learned somewhere along the line that I like learning mm -hmm. and doing a different discipline, moving over from studying and learning so much about literature and writing and then film the progression and education, pedagogy. Now my interest lies with learning more about psychology. Uh, it's just, it, it's in keeping with my kind of thirst for knowledge. I think one of the reasons why your class is so popular, every, everybody wants to take psychology, is because of the longing to understand the, the why are we here? How do we work? Why do we make yeah. the decisions we do? And I guess, I don't know if, if this is far-fetched or if you'll have examples for this, but do you have any ways that you have used psychology in your life to make changes or give knowledge to someone else that was life-changing? Uh, I think probably one of the things I live by uh, that I teach, and it's not yet a lesson I've taught in your class, uh, there's something called the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error basically says that we tend to take social interactions with other people. The, the way that another person reacts to us, we attribute their behavior to something about them. Let's say you text a friend and you kind of hope and you expect a text back almost immediately. And when you don't get that, you feel anxious, right? You're like, oh, where's my friend? Let's say you don't even hear from that friend for an entire night. You don't think things like maybe they're busy, Maybe they turn their phone off for good health. Maybe they're asleep. You think things like, they don't care about me, or mm -hmm. potentially, or they don't really want to respond to me, or I shouldn't be bothering them. And so you fundamentally attribute their non-responsiveness to something that they feel or something that's within them that may be a reflection about how they feel about you. Mm -hmm. When it's a lot easier and healthier to attribute their behavior to something that has nothing to do with you, something that's more logically the, the cause for they're not texting you back. And you find that as you do that, it's not that you're treating the friend better, but you're treating yourself better by recognizing that some of their behaviors are attributable to things that you are not considering in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that goes, if you can expand that to that person's in my way, they're so slow when you're on the road, or if you can expand that to your spouse or you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, best friend, and the way that you interact, sometimes they're having a bad day for some reason that has nothing to do with you. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and giving them that space to live that way will make life easier for you, which is the trick. It's a selfish thing to recognize that sometimes people are uh, responding to things not about their character, not about their self, but about their external world. I don't know if that makes sense. There's, I'm mixing it a little bit. Fundamental attribution error is simply not recognizing that forces act upon people mm-hmm. that you don't see. And assuming that the expression of whatever they're saying in the moment, their emotions, is a reflection of how they are. That's the fundamental attribution error. But part of part of recognizing that in people is, is, is seeing that there are other elements at play that have nothing, something called the spotlight effect, something that has nothing yep. to do with you. So it's a couple, it's a combination of things that I think about. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> no, that, that does make sense. I probably that answer, Eden. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> Uh, it, it will be fine. I think the spotlight effect is, I mean, when I learned about things, things in your air class, there are specific things you teach about that resonate a lot. And then once you know about it, you see it everywhere. Like the spotlight yeah. effect on Zoom, I can think like no one is looking at me during class. And then another one that I've been applying a lot is the false consensus effect, thinking that your beliefs are like more universal than they are because of the people you're surrounded with. It's fun to have things in a class that apply so immediately to the real world. You don't have to put in too much more to see how they apply. I'm glad that you connect with us. It's liberating yeah. to recognize that we all have these common experiences that can have this negative effect on our thinking. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As for applying psychology to your parenting, I know you have kids. Yeah. And I'm curious if it influences your parenting style at all. Uh, it has. We'll talk about parenting styles, the permissive, authoritative, and authoritarian. Authoritative is kind of the, the balance, if you will, between being too permissive and authoritarian, which is where you don't give a child a reasoning for why things are or why you ask certain things of a child. So, so kind of always being aware of that balance is always part of my parenting. It's applied in funny ways, things that I probably shouldn't admit. For example, I conditioned, I think I've told you all this, I've conditioned both my children to fall asleep to the same song uh, when they were oh, babies. And so I would rock them to sleep and I would play quietly a song by the National called Humiliation. And I would play that and play that and play that. And they came to associate that song with their sleep so that when we'd go on long trips and they were being you know, jerks in the back of the car, <laughs> I could play humiliation and they would be asleep in three minutes. And that was, that was a cool, you know, you really shouldn't condition people against their knowledge, but anyway, I conditioned them to fall asleep for a long time. My wife still marvels. I can still use it with my four-year-old pretty easily. And it calms down Esme who's seven to play that song. Yeah. So I've applied it. I've taught my oldest daughter elements of psychology that she uses to get her way with her youngest daughter, my, her younger sister, sorry. Um, so, for example, there's laws of conservation, which are basically acknowledgement that even as containers change, so let's say I had a big bowl and six M&Ms, and then a tiny cup with nine M&Ms, the bigger bowl contains fewer M&Ms. We all recognize this. But four-year-olds, three-year-olds in particular, don't really see this. So Esme's learned to request the smaller bowl of... <laughs> of chips for me when I fill it with more chips so that her younger sister thinks she's getting more, even though she's getting less. Anyway, things like that happen a lot. (laughs) They're lucky to be growing up learning 
these interesting things. <laughs> we'll They'll see. be experts by the time they're my age. Manipulative people. Oh, <laughs> or very manipulative people. Um, so parenting in the Mercer Island environment, of course, it, it varies. It varies in any place how a parent parents their kid. But we live in this very cutthroat academic environment that can tend to be a little bit intense. And I was wondering, have you ever seen tendencies in people or, or organizations on Mercer Island that from a psychological perspective, you see as flawed, like something that could be improved? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. And it's a hard one for me to answer, partly because I'm not a parent on the island and partly because I tend to be, I tend to be more confident about the general health of our community than, um, than uh, concerned. I mean, you should always be concerned as an educator and a teacher and as a mentor. And I'm always concerned in that respect, but I don't know that, and maybe it's because I don't know enough. Let me be very clear. Maybe that I'm, I'm kind of blind to things in some respects, but I, I don't think that it's as exceptionally difficult to live in MI as it is a lot of places. Every mm -hmm. place has its own challenge. And Mercer Islands, yes, it's generally based upon this kind of expectation of the students in the school to excel in ways that put great pressure on them, particularly on, I would say, our female student population, just to be very blunt. But like, I don't know. I, I don't know um, if there's an organization or a component of it that I would seek to change. I just think there's, there's always room for just giving people space to make mistakes. This is not really an answer to your question. And I don't know that it's particular to Mercer Island, but I think as a consequence of how things have become so, there, there's an answer to questions. Mm -hmm. There's a right and a wrong. And those are, those are something that are easily accessible, right? We don't have to make a mistake. Like I, you know, I muddle through answers sometimes because I've learned not to be worried about making mistakes or screwing up. Mm -hmm. And I think if I had to change anything, it would be to assure students that it's okay to make mistakes, that learning doesn't happen without that right? Mm -hmm. To be flawless, to be flawless, to get the answer right all the time is to never really learn. Um, you won't, if you don't make a mistake with something, you won't better improve your memory of it. It's the struggle that makes it more memorable. I'm always in, on the side of slogging through, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes, and recognizing that the struggle is what teaches. Pain is an educator, and it's not a very mm -hmm. fun one um, but it does teach us a lot. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> no, that that definitely makes sense. Fear of failure is a very real thing. I mean, no one wants to make a bunch of mistakes. But, no, <laughs> no one I does mean, because it feels like it feels like you failed if you fail. But I would argue that you're not learning if you haven't failed a little. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Um. In your entire class, you teach about so many different things under the umbrella of psychology. Yeah. Uh, if there were maybe three-ish takeaways that a kid gets from your class that they learn from you, maybe it's a, a psychological principle or it's a value, um, what would you want those things to be? What do you want kids to walk away with? Wow. Um, <laughs> how about I do two from psychology and one from English? Uh, I okay, would start, okay. I would actually, it, we, it comes at the end of the year, but when I do talk about fundamentally attributing people's behaviors to the, to the person, to their own disposition, 
rather than their environment. I think recognizing when you do that will make people happier and healthier in life. So recognizing that sometimes people are reacting in a way that may not be their character, but maybe that, that particular day or the circumstances of learning in remote school or a host of things that you're oblivious to, I think it makes you a better person in that you give people a little bit of space and grace, you're more likely then to not attribute their behavior to their interaction with you particularly. So it makes it better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing I would probably emphasize, and this is going back to what I was saying about struggle, is effortful processing. And this is something we'll talk about with memory, that to commit to memory, you have to work for it. And that's not just committing to memory Mm -hmm. facts and definitions. It's it's all things. So it's, it's the effortful processing of practice and rehearsal. For me, it's something I have to remind myself to do by writing every day so that that muscle, my writing muscles intact when something comes to me and I want to write it down. If I've been rehearsing and practicing and effortfully processing that skill, and again, this is mixing things because it's an implicit skill. If I don't realize that there's something necessary about practice, rehearsal, retrieval, then I won't learn something or it won't grow. So I don't know. It's never a nice thing to learn that learning is best when it's a challenge, but mm-hmm. I'm away learning that from my class. Like it, uh, I often talk about something called learning styles and mm-hmm. I'll disabuse yeah. people of that. I'll talk about learning preferences. We all have a, a way we like to learn, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that which we're learning will stay with us. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. And then I guess for English, my hopeful takeaway is, I don't know, this power of story, power of narrative. Learning to compose your thoughts in writing is very much parallel to learning to compose yourself whenever you're speaking, placing an argument or analyzing a problem. So the skills, even though it may seem silly to write about Holden's red hat or who's the scapegoat and who's the sacrificial lamb and Lord of the Flies, it's those are silly things it seems to write about, but if you do that, you learn to not only appreciate the story, uh, all stories a little bit more, but you also learn how to articulate argument, which is really important. I mm-hmm. think. Okay, I, for any job. <laughs> I think those are are fantastic takeaways, um, okay. and you. I think me along with the rest of your students just really trust your taste. We trust your <laughs> wisdom and your advice. <laughs> And your taste. You play music at the beginning of Zoom calls. And I think going through a few of your favorites would be kind of a fun thing. Like favorite book, favorite movie, and you talk about your interest in film. So would that be something that you would be up for? Yeah, sure. Sure, let's do it. Okay, let's start with music. What are your favorite... I'm saying favorite, not like all... Like you don't have to pick one. You can name a few... Oh. Name a few artists you like, a few songs oh. you like. Oh, it's so hard. Um, so I was just told you, I just went out for a walk, actually a jog, which is, I, I could barely call it a jog. But anyway, um, and I was thinking about music this year a lot. Oh my gosh, favorite. So let me, let me give you my favorite singer-songwriter that's presently working. It's a guy named Bonnie Prince Billy. And Bonnie Prince Billy is, uh, he's a guy from, uh, Kentucky. He's a pretty cool singer-songwriter. I got to meet him once, and he's a very prolific artist. Uh, I love a band called The National, as I think I just mentioned about Esme. Mm-hmm. 
if I had to name my favorite bands that weren't really obscure, the National and Radiohead are top of the list. Okay. Um, but a favorite song this year, uh, let's do it like this. What do you say? Let's see if I can do this, Eden. Favorite song this year, this, is, this will be the way to do it. For whatever reason, and I am not a fan of Hall & Oates, but this song, you might have heard it a couple times. Is that playing? And I don't know why this song has been my, my jam this year. It comes in at the end of the movie Palm Springs. Uh, which was a film on Hulu. Pretty good movie, kind of a Russian doll, Groundhog Day movie. But this song. I went downtown to see my lady. She stood me up and I stood there waiting. It'll be alright when the morning comes. Now I'm up in the air with the rain in my hair. That song has been a really good one for 2020. Um, another song that's been a favorite of mine this year, totally different from that, is a guy named Bartiz Strange, uh, artist out of Oklahoma City, and this song called Boomer Hits. There, there are some words in that. I don't. I think they're pretty difficult to hear that are inappropriate. But um, so yeah, I don't know. When I think of 2020, this and then my last one that I was thinking about today. This is probably my. I, I think this is probably a favorite for a lot of people. Um, this track, uh, this particular year. This track is called "This Year," and it's by the Mountain Goats. Okay. This is a different variation of the song, but... You should play this on the show. But do you know it? If you don't know it. Obviously, the chorus being, I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me, I think it's a good anthem. But I don't know. I, I love I love music. I love whatever song I've never... I, I've always... One of my cheesy answers that if I ever got to go on a, you know, like a, 
a blind date, which I've never done. But if I ever were asked the question, the, the, the bad answer I would give people is, my favorite song is one I haven't heard. My favorite meal is something I've never eaten. And I just like, mm. the, I like the new, the yeah. thing that I've never tried. Uh, but yeah. then there are things that are still favorites. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm I'm so glad I asked about your music taste. It's I mean, it, I love hearing your songs every morning oh, thank um, you. for psychology. And I know my friends do, too. Um, <laughs> That's great. So I'll tr I'll try to get through a few more favorites. Um, sure. What's your favorite kind of student? OK, wait, no, that's that's very that's like sounds like a binary. I mean, not like a specific kind just what do you appreciate in students I, I i like how every student is different from one another to be honest mm -hmm. i know this sounds like a corny answer but i'm going to say it anyway and a lot of people may say oh, i don't buy it but i had a student one year who said in reflection in my class that what she liked about it is that she got the sense that i didn't have favorites mm -hmm. that was really reassuring to me because i don't i i really each student, even the students who might think that they're on the outs with their teacher because they're struggling in a class or something like that, because I don't attribute it to them personally, or that it's my class's fault, or that they don't like school. I assume there's a lot going on that makes things mm -hmm. a challenge. So I, I recognize that each student brings to the, to the classroom unique talents and skill and knowledge, and some of those things I'm totally oblivious to. I have no idea what that student mm -hmm. brings to the table because my particular class doesn't necessarily ask them to demonstrate those skills. So I, I know that those things and those interests exist outside of my classroom always for each student. And I'm, I'm genuinely curious to know what those are. So yeah, it's just each student has their own, uh, you know, their own thing. And I like learning about that over the course of the year. It's cool. Okay, I've, I've noticed that you don't pick favorites too. And I really, I really I appreciate that. Um, and then I think we have time for one more favorite. Would you rather share about your, one of your favorite movies or one of your favorite books? Oh my goodness. I think I mentioned, so, so I, I've mentioned this in class just because it's here. I'll just, I'll say what's my favorite book because it's right here. Okay. Um, and because I, I've mentioned to you in class, I, I got a chance during COVID to actually meet over Zoom virtually in a room of three people, Adam Johnson, who's Ooh. one of my favorite writers right now. He wrote a National Book Award uh, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for the orphan. He won a Pulitzer for a book called The Orphan Master's Son, mm -hmm. which is about North Korea. And then he run, won the year after a National Book Award for a book called Fortune Smiles, which is a collection of short stories. This is something I've always wanted to write a book whether it's a mm -hmm. novel or a short story, I'm presently trying to write both, which means I'll never finish either. But this book by Adam Johnson called Fortune Smiles has some of my favorite stories that I've read recently. There's one called Nirvana that I love. There's a story that the, the title story called Fortune Smiles, which is great. But my favorite is about an ex-German Stasi officer called George Orwell was a friend of mine. And I absolutely think it's a brilliant piece of writing to have concocted up this story. He's able to, I like writers who do things that I could never envision myself capable of doing. Um, mm -hmm. Johnson is most recent. Um, there's, oh my gosh, there's so many that I could go through, but I'll, I'll I recognize time maybe of the other. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, 
you've convinced me to want to read that. So that's I a great book. Out. George Orwell is a friend of mine. That's a really good, really good story. <laughs> um, okay. Well, uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining me this time, oh, You're so welcome, Eden. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Oh, I feel like I could talk to you for so much longer. I have so many questions that I could ask. But for now, this has been Eden with my psychology teacher, Mr. Randolph, on Cam IH 889 The Bridge. You can listen to my show, Garden of Eden, every Saturday at 10 a.m. I hope you have a great rest of your day.